everyone, Anna Lytle here. And Kat Pusey. And welcome to the Modern Farm and Artisan Co-op Podcast. We're here connecting you to the lives and stories of our local farmers, makers, and educators that are all dedicating themselves to positively and powerfully impacting the Southern Utah community. Today we are talking with Jacqueline Pace, a certified Montessori teacher and founder of Diverse I Teach, an educational organization focused on celebrating diversity, promoting sustainability, and fostering community here in Southern Utah. So let's jump right in. First off, thank you, Jacqueline, for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. Okay, so uh, full disclosure, Jacqueline's one of my very good friends. Okay, so give us some of your background on your journey and what got you here today. So I am from New York originally, and I've kind of lived all over the place. Um, I lived in Alaska, in Washington State, in Arizona, California. And when I was pregnant with my son, I just really felt the need to like set, you know, settle down somewhere and put roots somewhere. And I have some family here in St. George. So this seemed like a perfect place to do that. Um, So I've been here, my son's three years old now. So I've been here about three and a half years. So that's kind of my personal side of how I got to Utah. Uh, As far as education, I've been working in education for almost two decades now, which is crazy because I don't feel like I'm that old. But I went to college for journalism originally, and then realized that um, education was kind of calling me. So I switched to education. And uh, really, once I I started learning about like pedagogy and theories of education, I got really interested in alternative styles of education, because I was brought up with a really traditional style and didn't really know that there were other options out there. So so I went to a really progressive school in New York City called the New School. It was uh, Eugene Lane College is their like liberal arts college. So I just was really um, kind of enveloped in these progressive thinkers like Paulo Freire and Miles Horton and Bell Hooks who talk about education for social change or education as a way to uh, to, to change things in society that maybe need to, to be shifted with the times. And so once I found that, I just kind of like lit up and was really excited about, um, about pursuing that avenue of education. So I left... Uh, with my bachelor's in education studies with an emphasis on pedagogy, uh, which is actually like philosophies of education. So when I graduated, I really was not prepared to teach. I knew a lot about theories of education, but I didn't really know how to teach, how to be in a classroom, which I found was really different than the way teachers are trained. Um, Teachers are actually not trained in pedagogy or philosophy or theories of education. They're just trained in practices mostly. So it was a benefit to me because I really had a different introduction to what, you know, what teaching is and what education is. But then I had to learn how to actually teach by being in a classroom. Um, And my first teaching job, so I kind of jumped around and did a lot of after school programs. It was difficult to get certified because the program I was in wasn't like a track program. You know, it just kind of um, it was more of a a theories program. So I wasn't certified and I kind of worked in after school programs and summer camps and things like that, which was great because they are they're a lot more free and you have a lot more um, freedom to just explore different topics that you don't in traditional school situations. But ultimately, I found a job at a Montessori school uh, in Camp Verde, Arizona. That was really my first introduction to to Montessori. Um, And they sent me to Montessori training back in New York, which is really was really cool. Um, But it was a really rigorous program. And uh, I ended up getting credentialed in Montessori and then ultimately got my state certification, my K-8 state certification. So I kind of did a back backwards approach to becoming a teacher. But I think that really shaped 
my views on education and the way that I teach. Well, then, so you said you originally started your schooling in journalism. Mm -hmm. Was there an experience that you had that made you switch to education? It was really just that I didn't know what exactly journalists do. I wanted to write for Rolling Stone and I thought I would like (laughs) hang out with musicians and like learn their life stories and then write about it. And I was uh, on the the school newspaper. I went to Penn State originally before I transferred to the new school. And I was on the, the newspaper there and I just was like writing stories about things that I just wasn't interested in because that's what happens when you are first breaking into the field. I think really what um, what triggered my change in like thought about what I wanted to do after college was college to me, like I went to Penn State, which is a pretty pr- traditional school. And so it was the same style of education that high school was for me, which I, I mean, I wouldn't say I excelled at, I did well at, but I wasn't really motivated by because it didn't, it didn't speak to me. I just knew how to write papers and do my homework and pass tests. And I always like made the honor roll and did well, but I could do more. I just wasn't motivated to do more because I wasn't inspired to do more. And so when I went to college and kind of had that same experience, I thought college was going to be different. different. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought I was going to go there and just be really inspired and blossom, you know, and I was like, oh, this is kind of the same thing. I'm going to class. I'm not really able to interact uh, with professors and peers as much as I thought I'd be able to. I'm writing papers and taking tests. It's really the same kind of thing as as high school was. And so I really reevaluated what I wanted out of education. And I ended up taking a break for about a year. And I found the new school, which is a really, it's a really incredible school. And it's a really different style of education where it's, it's really dialogic, it's small classes. It's all about dialogue between um, students and teachers. So my classes were like 10 to 15 students. Sometimes we would meet at, at professors' houses, you know, so you really, it, really what I was missing was that sense of community, which kind of brings it all back to to what I'm trying to do with Diversity Teach uh, is building community because um, I felt like in high school, elementary school at Penn State, my early college experiences were really lacking community. It felt like there were all these people in this place just filling certain roles and they weren't able to really collaborate with each other and they weren't able to reach their full potential because there were just so many limitations. Right. But when I switched to the new school, it was, it was so different. Um, and that was really inspiring and that's when I decided to focus on education because I felt like, wow, a lot of kids are going through the same thing that I went through where they're able to make it work, the traditional style of education, but it's kind of limiting. I think there's something very interesting what you said about being an open dialogue. Like mm-hmm. there's something so much more tangible and attainable when it's, you're being heard, mm-hmm. but you're also addressing your beliefs. Yeah, I know so many kids I used to work with, um, not in an educational setting, but I used to work with them as their supervisor. They were always under 18. And it was so interesting when I talked to Steph about them. I'm like, I know that you're learning this in school. And they didn't retain any Mm -mm. of it and had no emotional connection to it, had no idea what I was talking about. And it was because, you know, they're just taught to memorize facts and spit them out. They're not engaging with it. But if you can apply it to yourself and really question your beliefs Mm -hmm. or question what you're being taught in a safe space, I like that's the kind of education that I'd like to see. So I think Mm -hmm. that's really interesting. And that's my goal as a as an educator is to, I mean, really, the number one, and this goes back to the Montessori philosophy as well, the number one thing you need to do in an educational setting is create community. You need to create a space where people feel safe, where they feel like they can trust each other, where there there aren't really rigid, really rigid kind of roles that everybody plays. So in Montessori, that the 
the teacher is considered guides. And so they obviously the teacher has more knowledge than the kids do, but not all of the knowledge. Nobody nobody has all of the knowledge. Their their role is to guide the kids and to to see what they're interested in and help them explore those things. Um, so once I found Montessori, it really was in line with kind of the um, my own educational theories that I was trying to develop as a, you know, as a new teacher. I think it was really fate that I fell into, you know, finding a, a job, being offered a job at a Montessori school because I didn't know much about Montessori. And when I went to the training, all of a sudden, like this light bulb went off, like this is, this is it. This is what, this is how kids need to learn. They need to be, be able to explore and really find, like discover. Montessori is really about discovering knowledge, not just the banking style of education where the teacher holds the knowledge and it's their job job to just deposit it into the students. That's really what traditional education is. Um, Montessori education is more about the teacher being a guide and, and trying to help kids uh, discover things on their own. And that's supposed to give them like a passion for learning, right? Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, as they grow up and there are things they're, they're interested in, they'll be inspired to learn yeah. about it on their own, right? Yeah. Not only because somebody's like, this is what you're learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Conventional education really is um, like standards driven or knowledge driven, where Montessori education is um, more based on the child. It's right? child driven. Yeah. It's, it, it's about cool. intrinsic motivation where they see how exciting it is to learn. And so they want to they want to become lifelong learners. It's not about here's the information you need and I'm going to yeah. make you learn it. That's like that's like Waldorf. Like they're, I'm listening to a podcast that goes into the whole history of like Waldorf education mm-hmm. and their whole idea is the child is the curriculum. You base everything on the kid. And I just, I, I've never been to public school so I have nothing to compare it to. And so I remember I had a lot of friends who went to traditional school and I would always just be, what are you learning? What do you want to do when you grow up? Who do you want to be? Yeah. And they're like, uh... I don't know. In talking with both of you, it's so interesting to me because I grew up in Montana and that was not an option. Like there was no Waldorf, there was Montessori wasn't a thing. So for me to learn something, I'm not like, oh, I can just learn it. I'm like, no, I need to get in the class. I need to find somebody. I need to learn like this way. And then also, I think I told you, I was like, when I was growing up, you had five job options, like lawyer, medicine, (laughs) like nobody told me like that there was all of these other job options. When I talk to somebody who does something really cool, it almost they almost always have had this experience with Waldorf or Montessori or their parents were like encouraging this lifelong learning thing and they found and made their own career. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. I was going to ask you, do you know the history of like Maria Montessori, like when she came up with this philosophy of education? Yeah, I don't remember the exact dates, but I know it's, I mean, it was like the 1850s or something like that. She's Italian and she worked specifically in the slums with kids who were considered, I mean, they, they basically called them idiot children. They were kids from, from poor, you know, working class families and they were basically deemed not not capable of learning. They weren't from the like upper crusts of society, which is education really has always, it's been more available, higher um, quality education, more available to the upper, you know, echelons of society. And so at this time, and I can't remember the exact dates, but she studied a lot of child development and was like, well, there's no kid that can't learn. Every child can learn. And so she, she, 
did a lot of observation of the kids and really figured out ways to help them succeed. And so it started out with kids um, that maybe were did struggle a little bit, maybe had learning disabilities or uh, it was an earlier time. So it was before we had these kind of diagnoses and, and right. things. But she um, she worked with these kids and, and really helps them succeed. And so ultimately then her method was transferred to, you know, to other classes of, of kids. And it and it worked for for everybody. So it's really been something that's been around for quite a long time and has been growing all over the the world because it, yeah. it has prov- proven to work with all different types of kids. It almost makes you wonder why traditional education hasn't been shifted by all these like more unconventional untraditional models because they've been proven to work. Like I, it makes me wonder why that hasn't infiltrated. I mean, every kid could benefit. Do you want the conspiracy theory? If you have the population that only learns what you want them to learn and you can control the message, why change it? Why would you actively or promote? Yeah, we should rename it. Yeah, Southern Utah conspiracy. I mean, education, especially in the United States, really came about during the industrial era when right. we needed workers. And so education was to prepare children for factory work. So that's why they have the bell system. That's why there's one teacher because there's like one foreman or one person who's in charge of a, you know, a floor or an assembly line. There were bells to change classes because they're like a lunch bell. And, you know, so it really was to get kids prepared for, for working in factories. And it hasn't changed a whole lot since then, which is, you know, it needs to, it does need to, because times are different now. And that's not saying, you know, I know a lot of public school teachers and you guys are amazing if anyone's oh, listening. Yeah. So this isn't anything negative about, about oh, y'all. No, totally not. But I think I know tons of public school teachers that will tell you the same yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> They're very over the standardized testing. They will tell you, you know, like just from the boots on the ground when the teachers are telling you it doesn't work and they're exhausted yeah. and oh, they're and the not system's supported. Flawed for sure. the, yeah, like there's something wrong. I think that's one of the big things in America right now is on top of everything else is just the educational system. I think that that is on the forefront of everybody's mind too. Like our teachers aren't being paid enough and they know that the way that they you can't categorize a kid's success by a standardized test. But back to you, do you think looking back on your childhood, there was any indication that you would be doing this today? Like teaching a kid's program or starting your own It's funny because I didn't, I never really thought I wanted to be a teacher, but I do specifically remember playing school with my brother and sister and I was always the teacher. So when I look back, I'm like, oh, I don't know why I didn't ever think I wanted to be a teacher, but I definitely played teacher. Like my, yeah, I would make my sister sit in, in a desk and do assignments. She's five years younger than me. They were definitely not on her like ability level, but <laughs> I had a card catalog system for my personal library that I like put this little teddy bear stamp on and like... Checked out books to yourself. Well, I would check them out to my brother and sister. Like, (laughs) that's like the cutest thing I've ever. But I never, like, I didn't realize that that was, you know, going to inform what I would do as a vocation when when I got older. I just, I wanted to be a writer for for the longest time. So that's just that's kind of where my sights were set. But thinking back, there are signs that maybe I was going to end up working in education. Is like writing your own curriculum something that you would be interested in doing? Since you like to write, Yeah. yeah, and I. I do still write. I mean, I'm trying to develop a program now that I can take into the schools here in St. George to do this diversity and sustainability work. So I am, I do write curriculum every week for, for the market, um, partly because it just helps me stay on, you know, on task. And ultimately I do want to 
have that available. There are different like different sites for teachers like Teachers Pay Teachers and Patreon where you can put content out that other people can have access to for really low cost or no cost. So I do want to do more of that, but that's it is really time consuming. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that's why they usually cost a lot because it takes a lot of time and effort to put all that together. But that is a, a goal for diversity teachers to actually create curriculum that then other people can use either lesson by lesson, like this is just an activity you can do in your class or a, like an actual whole um, curriculum for a specific group of lessons. I know that you've talked in the past, too, of having it available or some type of training for professional settings. Mm-hmm. After teaching in a classroom for about five years full time in, in a couple different Montessori schools in Arizona, um, I realized that I really wanted to do this like social justice, diversity, sustainability work. And so I went to grad school and I got a master's in sustainable communities with an emphasis in social justice education. I thought I was going to do a, um, a thesis and a research project on kids working on these kind of you know, issues like I had done in my classrooms. But I ended up really getting involved with pre-service teachers. So teachers who they're in school to become teachers and learning a lot about how, since my own background in education was non-traditional, I came at it through the pedagogy avenue instead of through like the practices and how to actually be a classroom teacher. So I was really kind of in awe of how teachers are trained because I didn't really know how teachers are trained. I wasn't trained that way. I really loved working with with the adult students. So they were, you know, they were still kind of kids. They were 18 to like 22 year olds, you know, but um, but they are considered adults. They're in they're in college. And I loved working with them because um, I saw I just saw a need for doing that kind of work that I had been doing with the kids with the the people who are going to be working with kids. So um, I didn't realize that that was where that was going to go, but it kind of fell in my lap. And um, I really, I worked with a teacher preparation program at Northern Arizona University where I got my master's and I just made some really great connections. I had some great mentors there and was given that opportunity to work with those young students who are now, I mean, now they're teachers. I'm still, you know, kind of in touch with a lot of them. And I see them now that they've graduated and they're in the classrooms. And the ones that um, I did actually a six week action research project where I really delved into issues of um, social justice, diversity, sustainability with, I think there were 12 uh, of the pre-service teachers um, to try and find out like what was driving their own theories of education and their own practices. Um, and the ones that I've worked with have, you know, they've sent me me messages that like that really informed the things they do in their classrooms. And so I I did think about that after grad school that maybe uh, that's the avenue I should go. And so I've been over the last few years since grad school, I graduated in 2015. So it's been about five years now. And I've been trying to figure out what to do next, because I knew I did go back to teaching in the classroom for a year after I got my master's. And I just was so unfulfilled by that because my mind had been expanded so much on what I could do in the field of social justice education. And so I just like, that's where my passion was ignited. And I felt like I, 
you know, it's difficult for me to be in a really rigid, even even in a Montessori school, it's still your role as a teacher is defined. Um, and all of the diversity and sustainability education work I was doing in the classrooms as a, as a, a full-time classroom teacher were add-ons. It wasn't the, the curriculum. And I realized that I really needed that to do that for myself. Um, so that's how Diversity Teach kind of came about is over these last few years, figuring out how do I, how do I stay in the field of education and do what I'm passionate about. It's kind of, you know, doing all of these little bits and pieces. So doing the program with the kids at the, at the farmer's markets. Uh, but then also I do want to be able to do trainings for local teachers, maybe for local businesses, you know, about why diversity and sustainability are really essential to a healthy, robust community. But what does sustainability mean to you and why is it so important? Sustainability uh, is really about meeting our needs now without sacrificing the ability of future generations to meet their needs. It's really multifaceted and it has uh, economic, social and environmental factors to it. So definitely sustainability has that kind of environmental like buzz to it. You know, that's how it's been uh, portrayed in, in, I guess, popular media and stuff. Mm -hmm. But it, but it is a deeper um, kind of concept. The social sustainability is about having resources available to the people in a community to help them succeed. So access to education, access to jobs that are, have a living wage, access to housing, affordable housing, those kind of things are a part of social sustainability. And then also having, um, you know, arts-based things available because the arts are so important to people, to people's happiness and their ability to be creative beings themselves. That's one of the main reasons too, why at the farmer's market, we've gone so uh, above and beyond to keep it free is, mm-hmm. is yes. Jacqueline ha- was like, this needs to it be needs sustainable to be for mm-hmm. everybody yeah. so that we can have this community sustainability. Right. Yeah. Because when I approached a few people with this idea, you know, I've had a few business mentors who are like, okay, this is a really marketable thing. Let's turn this into a money-making thing. And that's not my goal. I mean, of course I, I need to survive. <laughs> so I need to at least make enough to, to, to survive myself. But I really feel like this, these kind of programs need to be available and accessible in public places. So the farmer's market is perfect because people are coming there for other other purposes, but there's a program there that they can benefit from for their, their kids. And also I talk to probably as many parents and adults while I'm doing those programs at the market as I do kids because they're all interested and they want to know more. But yeah, having access to these kind of programs in public spaces is really important. And that's, that is a part of what sustainability, social sustainability is, is access to to these kind of things. And then the, the environmental aspect is obviously, I try to always use sustainable materials, using things that are recyclable, using natural things, tying into the economic piece, using sustainable materials also is economically more, makes more sense uh, because then you're not spending money on, on things. You're using things that are being thrown away or things that are going to go into recycling plants. I buy a lot of things at, at thrift stores um, because there's that's another way, like reusing things, repurposing things is, a, is another form of environmental sustainability, but also economic sustainability because you're spending a lot less money. It's cheaper to buy used things than it is brand new things, but it's also more environmentally friendly to do that. Every week people come back and say like, oh, you taught us how to do, you know, make salt dough last week. And then my kid was obsessed with it. And now we have three 
pounds of salt dough at home with just stuff that they had on hand. Yeah. Or my kids are rummaging through our recycling bins now for stuff that they can make <laughs> things out of, which is great because really the more we can use something before, like recycling should be kind of a last resort. It shouldn't be, there's so much single use, so much packaging that we just you know, it's used one time and we, we throw it in the recycling bin, a lot of which doesn't even end up getting recycled. So if we can reuse it, at least we're giving it more life and the kids have so much fun with it. And there's so much benefit to reusing. Well, and it totally changes the way you view stuff. Like it completely changes the consciousness. Like even when I started getting into like zero waste and figuring out how to be creative and reuse things and it changes the game. Like you get so much more creative things you would never have thought about before. I think in today's age, like we've totally lost that. Like I think back to like my grandparents and great grandparents, they grew up doing that. Like, don't you dare throw anything away. And then today we're just like, oh, toss you in the trash, you know. A lot of times we do that out of necessity, not out of choice, but it is important to make that, that choice, you know. I mean, we don't start to react to things that are hurting us like in our environment until it's a necessity like we're the ultimate procrastinators yeah yeah like hey uh california's on fire maybe we need to do something about this rather than like let's do something beforehand so it doesn't get to that point you know so but like last week we made art out of like eggshells and uh sand coconut husks and all like you know, stuff that's just natural materials. And the kids loved it. They were excited to be able to use things that they see around them or that they even view as maybe trash and then use them to make art. Uh, whereas, you know, a lot of people think they need these bright, shiny things and they don't necessarily want or need that. They they, they really react well to learning that things are, can be used in different ways. Well, and one thing that I've kind of wondered is like in today's society, we just consume and throw away, consume and throw away. I've wondered how that affects us personally, especially kids. Like they see, oh, something's broken. It gets thrown away. Mm-hmm. I would just wonder what that does to the psychological aspect of like how we view ourselves. Like if we're broken, if we're not perfect, we just get, you know, tossed away. We're not worthy if we're not perfect and beautiful and clean and new. I don't know. But I've I've often wondered that, especially, I mean, with with the rate of consumption and how that affects our psychology. Yeah, that's a good point. If we focus more on fixing things right. that are broken rather than discarding them, then that might have a big shift. Right. There's like the Japanese method where they mend things with gold. Mm-hmm. And so like the cracks and stuff becomes part of the beauty. And I just, I can't imagine, you know, how much of a benefit that would be to, to the psychological nature of a, of a society. It's okay to be broken. Mm-hmm. We'll fix you with we'll gold. Fix it. Yeah, we can fix it. Yeah, I think it's called shashiko. I could be wrong. But it also applies to like the mending. They used to just mend their kimonos like over and Mm -hmm. over, especially the fishermen. And so they'd put all these visible mending on it. By the end of it, these kimonos are worth thousands of dollars just because of the embroidery and the work on it. And And they're like a a work of like... They're a physical piece of history. Yeah, and they yeah, and a history of textiles too, because it just shows the change in production and the colors they were using. And I love just the way that you explain sustainability. So how would you define diversity and why is that important? So diversity is really about celebrating uh, each other's uniqueness, that every person is unique. Everybody has a different perspective. And it, it really focuses on different aspects of, of individuals like, you know, race, class, gender, sexual orientation, religious beliefs, political beliefs, anything that really we're all amalgamations of, of these things, these pieces of ourselves. So diversity is really about 
recognizing that, that everybody is unique. Nobody is the same, even if they look the same, even if they had similar upbringings, they still are different people because they've had different experiences. And because of that, they have different perspectives. And I think that's really valuable, really for for societies to be creative and, and innovative, because if everybody is coming at some you know, say some problem that we have as a community or, or a societal environmental problem, everybody has the same perspective or the only people who are invited to the table to solve this problem have the same perspective. Their viewpoints are limited. They all have the same perspective. So therefore, what they could come up with as a creative solution is going to be stifled because there's not more diversity at the table. And that's why it's so important to have diversity at the table. Uh, so not only for, for the whole community to be able to have that problem solving power, but also for individuals to feel like they are welcome in their community, to feel like they are a part of the community and that their their voices are valuable, their voices are being heard, that they have equal opportunity for success. So it's important on an individual level, but also on a, a larger level. So it's like opening that dialogue. It's just like the experience that you attach to so much in college is having that open dialogue. Yeah. Whose voices are being heard, whose voices are being valued. Mm-hmm. And it's important that, you know, not to like, not just the teacher is not the only one who has the, the knowledge, the students have knowledge too. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why I love teaching is because I'm always learning. I mean, I'm you know, a perpetual learner myself. I'm just kind of a nerd and I love to learn new things. And kids have such a different perspective than adults have. So I love that every time I'm in, you know, a educational setting, even as a teacher where I'm supposed to be the one guiding the kids, I'm still learning from them. They have different perspectives. They always, I always come in with a plan for, you know, how we're going to do a certain activity or project. And inevitably, you know, the kids are like, oh no, this is how we're doing it. And I'm like, that's so much better. And I didn't think of that. Like when we made those, um, we were making jewelry with the bicycle collective and I just, you know, I brought all the the stuff and I told the kids we're making jewelry out of upcycled bicycle parts. And the first kid that came was like, I'm going to make a superhero bracelet. And then every kid for the rest of the three hours, that's what they did. And it it was his, you know, the first kid who came, it was his idea and all the other kids loved it. And I was like, that's perfect. Why didn't I market this as we're making superhero bracelets with upcycled bicycle parts? I didn't think of it, but you know, it was better than the idea that I came up with. And it was from a, I mean, he was like seven, seven year old. So really diversity is about valuing other people's perspectives and voices and, and really just their, their existence, you know? Yeah. I think that's really important. Well then what does a true local community look like and what is needed to create that? So a local community, I think is really about building those connections. I mean, community ultimately is about relationships. So having relationships with your neighbors, with, with people who, who live in your vicinity. So whether it's shopping locally or, you know, you're going to local schools, it's really about interacting and engaging with people who are in your, you know, in your area who are close to you. Um, I think to make a community really vibrant and robust, you really need to have those aspects of diversity and sustainability. This is something I I really struggled with in grad school because the program I, I was in was called Sustainable Communities. So I was really prepared to learn about like what 
what is a sustainable community and how do you create one? And one thing that came up was um, not all communities are are even ones that should be sustained because they're not ones that are um, benefiting everybody. And communities can be dysfunctional and they can be um, things that need to be dismantled and then kind of re, you know, reimagined and rebuilt. But the way that happens is, is collaboration with people. And so that's why that's something that I really strive for with diversity, which is not just working in a vacuum and thinking like, I have these ideas and this is what I'm going to do, but reaching out to other organizations, other people who are doing work in the community that we can collaborate on something. Because by collaborating, you then have these, you know, like two different uh, or maybe similar ideas, but all of a sudden putting them together, it just grows exponentially. There's more creative power by collaborating with people. And you brought in a lot of people from the community. It was so funny. Like, I remember at the beginning, you were like, I don't know how I'm going to find diversity in the community, but people were just coming out of the woodwork. Why don't you just name a few of the people and the organizations that you worked with? Yeah. So, I mean, I just started by reaching out to everybody I knew and like just kind of searching local organization and, and seeing who would be willing to collaborate. So we worked with the St. George Bicycle Collective, the Dixie LGBTQ Teen Alliance, Pride of Southern Utah, uh, the Dinosaur Discovery Site. You've done stuff with DSU too, right? Yeah, Dixie State University's STEM Outreach Program. So they do like science, technology, engineering, and math education. I also reached out to friends that are, you know, uh, musicians and artists in the community. So um, Joy Elaine from the Desert Nomads Belly Dancing Collective, Amanda Barrick, who's a local musician. I have a friend who does henna, Akira. She came and did some henna. I, I reached out to another friend. She had posted something about doing um, these those eggs, cascarones, which are um, like chicken eggs that are filled with confetti and then kind of like glued over and they they use them in celebration for a carnival. And so I just asked her to come. So she was just a friend, Priscilla, that came and did that. So, I mean, I just think it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of diversity here. There's a lot of people who um, just have their own kind of cultural celebrations that they do with their families or maybe with other people in their, in their communities, uh, but that the, the rest of the community would love to to learn about. And it gives them recognition that, you know, the, the things that you celebrate and the things that you um, find important are valuable. And if you want to share them, not everybody wants to share those things, you know, but if they do want to share them, I love that we're able to give them a place to do that. That's awesome. So how much work do you think goes into running the program? A lot. I don't know how many hours. I don't, you know, because it's not really a job, it's a passion project. I don't keep track of hours, but I know we run the three hour long program once a week. And then there's probably like an hour, half an hour of setup, half an hour of teardown besides the like loading it into my car, loading it out of my car, loading it back into my car (laughs) and back into my garage where I hoard all of the craft and recyclable (laughs) and natural materials I can find. So there's all that stuff. The curriculum writing takes a few hours. I do a lot of like marketing, social media stuff, like creating the events and then sharing them, um, posting reminders about them. I do a weekly newsletter, probably like 15, 20 hours a week of of work. I'm doing a lot of fundraising work right now too. So every week kind of 
differs, but um, it's probably 15 or 20 hours a week of work. But then I also have three other jobs. Yeah. And I'm a single mom of a toddler. So, so it's a lot of work, but it, it doesn't, you know, sometimes it feels like work because there's actual physical labor or actual like mental labor that goes into it. But really, I love all of it. So it's, you know, that's the difference between a vocation and a job or, you know, working in your a passion project. And right. Like what's the what's the phrase when you're doing what you when you're doing what you love, you're like never at work or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. So it's really I mean, ultimately, my goal is to be able to make this into my work, you know, so that I'm not doing this on the side. I want this to be what I'm doing and what I can sustain myself financially doing because I love doing it. I do feel like there's a need. There's been a lot of positive feedback and a lot of support in the community. So I think it's something that the community sees as a need as well. I'm just trying to work on that, um, how to rectify that, like, that I should have a job that pays me and then I should have this thing I do on the side. Like I'm really, I really feel like I can do both. And it's just a matter of figuring that out because it's not necessarily the way everybody does it, you know, but that's the beauty of thinking outside the box and trying to figure out like how you want to live your life and making that happen. Right. And it's made such a huge difference in the community. You're right. It's watching that tent and watching the people that come out of it week after week. It's just becomes part of so many families like weekly schedule. Mm -hmm. So many people are just like, well, it's not just one off. So there's a lot of repeat people coming. Most of the time it's the same. I mean, there's always new people that are coming to the market, but most of the time it's the same people that that come every week and are excited about like, hey, what are we doing this week? The same, some of the farmers and artisans Mm -hmm. kids are there every week. And, you know, I know them by name and that's really cool. So I'm able to, even though it's something that's happening in in the public, it's not a contained classroom. It still is a really community building space because there are a lot of the same people that come every week. And so the kids get to know each other. The parents get to know each other. I get to know, you know, all of them. So that's, that's been really cool. When you just started like the toy library, Mm -hmm. right? Cause my son got a kick out of that. (laughs) I mean, geez, he played with those trains for probably like 30 minutes. And, and I think that's one reason why Kat and I wanted to have a, a, children's program at the market was because we both have young kids and we wanted it to be a family friendly space and a space that was inviting to kids so that people didn't feel like, oh, I can't come because I have my kid and there's nothing for them to do there. So now there's an art project every week and toys for them to play with and, you know, other kids for them to interact with. You know, that isn't an issue just in society in general, where like if you have kids, there's not a space for your kids, you know, in every place in society. I mean, it's difficult to go to a restaurant with kids because the way adults interact in the world is very different than the way kids interact in the world. Kids want to explore. They want, they don't want to be contained and sit at a table or, you know, they want to be able to run around and touch things. And, and that's not really generally acceptable in adult spaces. So I think it's really important to have these spaces that are directed at kids and that they're able to get messy and experience and be invited at that. You know, the whole market now is, I love seeing kids running around the market and that they feel comfortable there and they know that there's a space for them there and it's not like uh when are we leaving this is boring you know yeah and it's weird that we have this expectation that kids should just be able to control themselves in all these new environments when most adults can't control themselves and also that are kids that are that do question things and, <laughs> right you know i mean we fight against that with our kids because we're like just do what i say this you know you're making things more difficult but really what kind of person are they going to grow up to be then they're going to be that person who's like wait a minute i need to think outside of this box 
box that you're trying to put me in and try to find more creative solutions or question things and make sure that I believe in what I'm doing or I agree with, you know, whatever information is being presented to me. So it's, I mean, even though it's difficult for us as parents when they don't do what we want them to do or act like little angels in perfect in public it's it's actually a really good indicator of the kind of adult that they're going to become i think those are positive qualities i mean people who think outside of the of the box are people who are innovators people who are you know who have created the things that like computers and you know technology and creative solutions to going to be like Tesla's. Yeah, exactly. Those are, I mean, if you look at, at those people, those innovators, they usually do have, um, they, a lot of them were rebels. A lot of them were kids that, you know, you know, bended rules or didn't follow the status quo. And they ended up becoming really influential people in society and being, creating things that we rely on. Like Albert Einstein. Yeah. Yeah. I think he, what, like flunked out of college or something? Or was it high school? He didn't, There's a whole story there. But yeah. yeah. His teacher sent a note home to his mom saying that he was, he could not be in the class anymore because, yeah, because yeah. he was stupid. He couldn't keep up with mm, the class. Yeah. I did hear that. I think she actually used the R word. And when he asked his mom what the note said, she said, oh, it just says that you're so smart that you, you're too smart you for your you class. You can't be in the class. And yeah. so she kept him home. And like years later, he found the note. But he, you know, she was just like, no, this kid's smart and I'm going to teach him. But he just doesn't conform to this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's, you know, like we talked about before, that's what school traditional schooling is about. It's about conformity. It's about not breaking the rules. It's about listening to directions, following directions. Uh, But that's not, those aren't necessarily the the type of adults that we need to, in society, we need creative thinkers. We need innovators. We need people who are kind of rebels (laughs) and don't conform. Well, then what's something that's been a surprise for you since you started Diversity Teach? I guess how consume you know consuming it is because so passionate about it. I mean, I just like I feel like I'm just always thinking about new you know what I can do to grow it and make it better or oh I need to do this I need to do that. I mean my list of things to do just keeps growing and like I cross one thing off and I add three more you know and that's because I know you can yeah. relate to that yeah. because yeah, you've yeah, got your sure. big whiteboard of <laughs> stuff you need to do and you know and and I'm I'm really capable and I'm really like I'm getting stuff done but there's just always more so it's not like things are just sitting there not getting done I'm checking things off but then I'm like oh but I should do this also yeah so I guess I you know I mean I know when I first became a teacher it was that way for me the first few years when I was getting my bearings as as a classroom teacher and I just was so excited about the job and I mean I remember my first principal came in one night like the first few weeks of school uh, and it was like six o'clock and she's like I'm leaving and you need to leave and you need to not, you're going to burn yourself out. Like you need to not be here every night, you know, as late as I am, like I'm running the school. I need to be here this late. You're, you're a teacher, you, you know, it's important, but like, you're going to burn out. And the burnout right now is the three years, I think for, for new teachers, it's just so much, so much work. But also I think because the people who become teachers are usually really passionate about education and working with kids and they want to do everything they can for them. And, there's just so much to be done, you know? So I guess there, there was a little bit of a, a sign there from my first few years of teaching that this might be really as consuming as it is, but I had never, this is the first time I've done something on my own that, you know, I just have 
complete creative control with and uh, which is great but also like sometimes I need to rein myself in a little mm-hmm. bit because I can't do all the things <laughs> you right. know it's probably hard when you have all these ideas and dreams not let it like bleed over into your personal life like is it hard to like draw boundaries and be like this is time for this and this is time for me I have a struggle yeah. with that <laughs> I guess it is because really like a lot of my good friends are people that I either met at the market or that I work with, you know, because it all like, I think it all comes back to that sense of community. I I think a lot of times we are taught or we think that we need to compartmentalize these different parts of ourselves, but that's not really how humans work. We're not like we are, we're just a mixture of things and all of these things are happening at the same time. So like I'm friends with people that I work with, you know, like, I do the things that I plan for the market I do with my son. So like they're all, um, they're all overlapping and they're all happening simultaneously, you know? So, um, I mean, it is hard sometimes to be like, okay, go to bed now. It's like, you're, you need to not be making lists at midnight every night of all the things that you want to do for diversity. But, uh, at the same time, if I'm feeling inspired by it and it's not, I don't think it's necessarily cutting into the time that I need to do other things because I can hang out with friends and talk about it or I can do projects with my son that would. So that's one reason why diversity teaches really amazing is that for me personally is that I it's not something that I just compartmentalize and do only, you know, at this point. Combines everything. Yeah, I'm able to do it like to do it with my son. So it it kind of um, partners with my parenting. Yeah. And when it is your passion, like it is your me time. You know, like if you got a couple hours to work on for yourself and that's your passion and it's leading you to your dream, like that's, yeah. you know, like it's not work that's taking away from what you want to do or what you want to build. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually think about that quite a bit. Like, would it be easier to just have a job that I, you know, that I care about, but I just go to like nine to five every day, there's my job. And when it's done, it's done. But that's not really me. That's not who I've ever been. I mean, I really tie together passion and, um, I guess, financial survival, you know, that's why I became a teacher. I mean, teachers don't make very much money. I didn't go into it for the money. I did it because I was passionate about it and I knew I could at least survive on the salary. For me, it's, it's just difficult to separate those things. I don't think I would be happy doing a job that I just did and left at work. I I don't think I would ever choose a job that I would just leave at work. Yeah. I would still be thinking about it outside of work. Yeah. Or, you I was know. like, and you always get sucked in. Yeah. Even if you you're not on the clock, doesn't mean yeah. you're not still engaged. What motivates you and inspires you to keep going forward? Uh, I think it's, it's really the, the engagement and reactions from the community members that I, that I work with. I mean, being there every week um, and engaging with the students and their parents and just how, just seeing the kids create and seeing them really engage with the projects that we're doing and the information that's, you know, that's being uh, offered to them. And then how involved the parents are too is, is really uh, motivating because they're, they're always like, you know, what is this? What are you doing? Oh, this is, this is really interesting. Tell me more about this. And, and there's always like people who come by who don't have kids who are like, what's going on here. And so all of that is really motivating that people are interested and, uh, there's so much positive feedback, which is, is really cool. And it's something that's different than when you're working in a classroom. A lot of times when you're working in a classroom, there's a lot of pushback because the kids, you know, they're there for eight hours a day or more. And some of them, sometimes they're like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to learn this thing that we're learning, you know, but in, in this 
situation. You're in a public place. Um, the kids are there because they want to be there. It's, it's an option. They don't have to do the program. They don't have to do the activity. Um, and it's really cool to get all of this positive feedback because a lot of times as a teacher, you don't get a lot of that, you know, you see it sometimes, but this is like, there's so much more than, than I ever have gotten before. And just this short, like three hour time period, once a week, getting all of these positive, all this positive feedback. A lot of times as a teacher, you feel like, am I like, am I even doing this right? Am I being, you know, effective? Are they enjoying this? Because you don't get all of that every day. What's something you failed at? And what did you learn from it? I don't know if it's a failure necessarily, but I'm really not great about the whole financial aspect of figuring out like how to, you know, ask for money, how to get funding, how to, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a failure, but it's something that I haven't overcome yet or I haven't succeeded at yet. <laughs> it's in process. And I don't, you know, I, I guess I look at, I try to look at failure or look at difficulty as learning experiences. Like right. you just haven't, you haven't mastered it yet. You haven't figured it out yet. Doesn't mean you're not going to, it's a process, you know? So I definitely need to figure out that relationship with how to figure out the financial aspects of like things aren't free, you know, it's, it doesn't, I mean, yeah, there's physical materials that you can get donations of or, or can be low cost or like using the sustainable materials and stuff. But like my time. Yeah, the 20 hours a yeah, week that you're like putting in. My time is valuable. And it's, right. you know, I have a lot like I have a master's degree and I have a bachelor's degree and I have, you know, I have all of these things that I've put my time into that should be worth something that should make my time valuable because it is, you know, time, time is valuable. And so I, I do have a little bit of difficulty with that, with figuring out how to ask for money for this stuff and how to, how to not feel bad about saying, Hey, I need to be paid for this because even though it's a need and even though it's, um, it's something that's really good for the community, I also need to survive. Right. And like a lot of people would immediately say, we'll charge for the class, but that goes against what we we're talking about mm-hmm. making it available. You know, there are so many classes where even $5 a kid or $2 a kid would make it economically unviable for that family. Exactly. You know, especially here in Utah where they, you could have 10 kids, you know, like that's 50 bucks. Yeah. And it's just not, you know, like yeah. even, or even just the, the class of people that, you know, like, especially if you're a stay at home mom here, you're working on one salary. Southern Utah has one of the lowest paid wages in Utah. So, I mean, like $5 per kid, if you have two, 10 bucks a week yeah. for the summer. That adds up fast. A lot of the people that come to the market use the like double up bucks yeah. and they're on food stamps and they come because they know they can get local food, but still they're low income. Yeah. And so asking them to pay for things is, you know, I, I, I don't feel good about that. I, but at the same time, you also need, don't feel good about doing it for free. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, I mean, I don't mind doing things for free, but I, I've gotten to that point where I need to, it actually takes away from my ability to survive and right. my, like I need to get childcare every week to, to be able to be there. Right. Uh, I, all the time that I'm putting in outside is taking away from other things that I could be doing to right. make money. And I would rather do this. So I'm really working on that, like melding, figuring out the financial aspect and the being able to do the work that I'm passionate about and yeah. not feel bad about it. It's a hard balance. I feel like that's a struggle that a lot of people have when it comes to stuff like that. But I also feel like it's a cultural thing too. Oh, where yeah. It's like you, if you want to do something, you should be able to afford to do it. Like you shouldn't be able, you shouldn't ask for people to help you. You shouldn't ask for these things. It's not my job to help you. It's, it's a very capitalist way of looking at it. But you know, that's kind of what got us into the 
predicament where we're in and where why we need these programs, why we need nonprofits to step in and fill this gap is because, you know, these people in our community needs help and they need connection and they need these these opportunities mm-hmm. to come together. So it is our responsibility to but you know, it's so against what we were raised to believe. Mm-hmm. So I I mean, you're going against condi- social conditioning too, which yeah. is hard. There was a TED talk about the difference between how we treat like nonprofit organizations and for-profit organizations. And it all came down to that. It was like what you, you expect nonprofits or people who are doing work in the community to do it for free because it's what you want to do. It's your passion work. So you should do it for free and work twice as hard as somebody who's doing it for money, for profit. And there was just a lot of, there were a lot of things in that in that TED talk that were really eye-opening that was like, oh wow, that's just a double standard the way that we view business and you know for-profit work and not for profit work. And why why are they so different? Why are they held to different standards? And why do we believe that for like in a for-profit business, the more money you make, the more valuable you are, the more um, successful you are. But in nonprofit if the CEO or somebody is making money, people are like, oh, they shouldn't be making any money. They should be doing that because they love to do it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But why can't we have both, you know? Why can't you make a living off of something but also be doing good? Living in the nonprofit world is definitely a big learning experience. Mm-hmm. Well, then what's, what would you say has been your biggest success and what have you learned from that? I think probably juggling. <laughs> That's probably uh, literally juggling. Or, yeah, <laughs> I was like, I thought you meant you literally juggling, and I was like, this changes our friendship Whoa, immensely. No, I did not know that. <laughs> um, no juggling, like life. You know, juggling being a, a parent, juggling working, juggling you know all the aspects of running a program and finding balance for myself to take care of myself that's been a that's been a real struggle especially since i became a a mother but just finding time for myself and and realizing how important that is to every other aspect it makes me a better parent when i'm fulfilled when i've had time to do things that are good for me i mean i wouldn't say it's always balanced it's really more of a juggling act than a balancing act because things are usually not balanced but figuring out how to fulfill all of these roles and uh, needs in my community and for myself. I heard this uh, quote and I don't know who it was, but she was just like, work-life balance is a joke. She's like, your life is not going to be balanced. Yeah. And she was like, at some point you're going to give more to this. Mm -hmm. And she goes, but then there's going to be seasons of your life where you step back and do this, being your own business owner and actually watching you to step into diversity and create this and everything like that. It's just been so interesting and so um, inspiring watching you find that line. And there's times where you can give more and then there's times that you pull back. Mm -hmm. And it's just been great watching you do that pretty much all on your own too. Well, and you have to learn that. I mean, you know, as a, as a business owner, you, you have to do that. I mean, I guess that's one of the great benefits of, of having your own business is that you sort of have that freedom to be like, hey, I need a week off and you're not going to get fired for it, you know, <laughs> because you are, you know, you're the boss. But sometimes you need to do that. You need like think things just get too much and you need to step back. And it's really it's in everybody's best interest for you to do that. Cause if you just push through it, everything's going to suffer. Your family's going to suffer. You're going to suffer and your business is going to suffer. So sometimes the best thing to do is to just take, take a little bit of a break or take some me time so you can regroup and be more effective. So now I think we're entering our final questions. What makes Utah special? Well, Utah is really a, an idyllic kind of place. It's, I mean, I'm an avid hiker and adventurer explorer and 
I don't, I don't think I've ever lived in a place that had more to do in such, you know, I mean, it's so vast. There's just so much to explore here. It's such a beautiful place. And it's also really a place that's very ripe for, for growth and change and innovation. And I'm just really excited to be able to be a part of that. I mean, I moved here um, to find a place to, to raise my son, to settle, to settle down and plant roots. And I'm really glad that I, that I chose Southern Utah because it really is a place that I feel like I've been able to build community and, you know, find people that I really connect with and feel supported by. There's been so much support here, especially in the female entrepreneurship uh, circles that I've been in. There's just so much support. People are so supportive of each other, always connecting each other with other people that, you know, can kind of help them with their their passions or their visions. Um, so I really love that about Southern Utah. Then uh, what's been your favorite part about being a part of the farmer's market community? I really love how community building it is, that it's, you know, it's a place where people come for more than just shopping. I mean, of course, they're coming there to buy their, you know, local vegetables and eggs and fruits and artisanal goods. Goods. <laughs> um, so they are coming there for that. But I think they're coming there for more than that, because it is really a gathering place. It's a place where people come to see their friends, to see, the, you know, to meet the people who are growing their food or making, you know, the beautiful things that they are, are purchasing for themselves or their friends. They come for the education program. They know that there's a space for their kids there. So I really love, I mean, it's really my favorite part of the week is being at the market because it's, um, it's such a, a vibrant place to be. There's, there's so many different people. There's so much community building going on there. And that's why I think farmer's markets are really so important for a community because it is a place that, um, you know, you can go, you don't even necessarily have to buy anything. People can come and, you know, listen to music or come to the education tent or just browse, you know, um, but also that they can consume things that are, um, that are benefiting their local community. So they're putting their money back into their community, which is really, really important. Right. And that plays a key role in sustaining your local community. You can't do it if you don't have the local economy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the statistic that every dollar you spend, 67 cents of it stays in the community at the farmer's market, as opposed to like the five cents that you gain from every dollar at Walmart. Do you have a favorite book, publication, or social media account that you find inspirational or profound? So uh, really my favorite book, my favorite kind of educational resource is called Teaching for Social Justice and Diversity, and it's by Adams, Bell, and Griffin. And that was like, my thesis basically was based on that on that book. And I would recommend it to to any teacher or anybody that, that is interested in uh, working. I, I, get, I mean, it really is focused on teaching. Um, but it does do a really good job of explaining what, what social justice and diversity education is and why they're necessary. So that's kind of my my number one. But I've been really influenced by um, Kevin Kumashiro's Against Common Sense. Um, that one talks a lot about what he calls common sense thinking, like things that we just don't question. So it's a lot about critical theory and critical educational theory. So thinking about why certain things don't work in schools, even though it, we think that they do, or it makes sense that they would. And then Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed is a huge one. 
Miles Horton's We Made the Road by Walking and Bell Hooks Teaching to Transgress are all, those are all books I read in, in undergrad actually that I've come back to year after year and kind of have been reading the last like 15 years. I think it's been now since I graduated undergrad. That's crazy. Well, and we'll include all those in the, in the show notes. Those are really great. They're really great resources, uh, especially for teachers, but really for anybody who is interested in delving deeper into what, like what education is and what the function of education is. And then as far as, far as like social media accounts, I follow um, a lot of similar diversity, sustainability, educational organizations like the Zen Education Project, which was started by Howard Zinn, who wrote A People's History of the United States. Um, that's a really awesome book about like the true history of, of the United States, not like the textbook version that we all learned in, in school. But the Zen Education Project, they have resources for teachers uh, about current events as well as like historical events, like how to teach about uh, like Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which is coming up on Monday. So there's lesson plans about that stuff. And um, then there's Rethinking Schools. Um, that's another one that's great. Teaching Tolerance, Teach for Change. Those are all accounts that I follow, but they before when I was first teaching before there was a lot of social media, they were like they had books and websites and, you know, print resources that I would use. And I've still been I mean, they're all updated now, but I've been using them for like, you know, 15 years, which is is cool that they're still happening. They're still like creating more content. And now and now they're using social media, which is how most people get their information these days. We'll include all that in case people want to find all those resources. Why should people buy local food and support local farmers and makers? Well, like we were talking about, 67 cents of your dollar stays in the community when you spend it locally, like at a farmer's market. Um, and that is so important for sustainability. Economic sustainability is is huge for sustaining a community and, and helping it be a vibrant, robust place for the people that live there to, to thrive in. So it's really important to, to support people locally that are doing things that you think are important. So like growing your food, it's, that's important. We need food to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, so choosing healthy food, like locally grown foods that don't have pesticides and, you know, other um, really detrimental things, um, in them is really important for our personal health and for our kids, you know, but also supporting people that are doing those things is really, I mean, money talks, you know, if you're spending your money on local um, organic or naturally grown foods, that shows, that shows that that's, that's a need that needs to right. be, you know, that'll, that's then, the voting with your dollar yeah, part. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So supporting, supporting local farmers and artisans, but also, it also cuts down on, on a lot of waste that is created for, you know, packaging and stuff. I mean, how much, how many things do you open and like just keeping something contained so that it'll last longer on a shelf, you know, and it'll cut down a lot on all of that packaging and stuff. And, you know, a lot of like fruits and vegetables are meant to be eat it, eaten it within a certain amount yeah, of time. Like a few they're, days. They're yeah. Picked. If you can buy something that's sitting on a shelf and has been there for three months, but it's, you know, a natural product, that's because it's been sprayed with something or it's got some kind of preservative added to it. That's probably not great for you. So it's really better for you, for your health to, to eat those, you know, local foods, but it's better for the environment as far as all that, you know, all the chemicals and preservatives that we use to preserve things and all the packaging. Okay. So last question. So if our listeners want to learn more about you and all you're doing, where can they find you? Uh, well, they can find us on Mofaco's website, mofacoutah.com slash diversity. And then we're on Instagram. Uh, it's at 
diversity it's d i v e r s i dot t e a c h so diversa dot teach and then on facebook we're at diversa dot teach dot ut because the other <laughs> one was already taken so yeah we're pretty um, active on social media so that would be a great place to follow if you follow our accounts then you'll get to know about all of the current events that are happening. We do hope to start branching out to the rest of the community too. So not just be at the market, but other public places like libraries or museums in um, in town. So if you keep an eye on our social media account, then you'll be able to see all of those. We also have a, a newsletter, so you can send us an email and you'll be put on that newsletter list that gives inf- more information about who we are and what we do and also current events and all that. So if you want to be added to our newsletter, it's diversa.teach at gmail.com. Just send us an email and say, add us and I'll add you. Yeah. And we'll include all that in the show notes too. So it's easy. People can just scroll and find mm-hmm. it and click away. Okay. Well, and then is there anything else that we didn't cover that you would like to share? Um, well, I can put a plug in for funding. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Let's do it. Which is my favorite thing to do. We are looking for funding to um, to, to keep running our programs. The, the downtown farmer's market in Ancestor Square is going to start in May. So we do need a local sponsorship to make sure that we have the funding to run that. It runs from May to October. If anybody is interested or has any leads or wants more information, um, Mofico is offering a sponsorship package too. So you can contact us and sit and talk. Well, very cool. Well, thank you so much for sitting with us today. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you found this podcast, especially on iTunes. If you have a specific question that you would like to ask us or our farmers, makers, or educators, send us an email at podcast at mofacoutah.com and let us know. Another way to support this podcast is by becoming a supporting member starting at only $2 a month. We have different levels of membership that grant access to special members-only swag like shirts, hats, bags, magnets, and stickers that show your support for your local community. To learn more, please visit mofacoutah.com slash podcast slash support. Make sure you are following us on Facebook and Instagram at mofacoutah and sign up for our email list at mofacoutah.com slash podcast slash sign up to stay up to date on all this podcast has to offer. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back in your feed in two weeks. But until then, we hope to see you at the farmer's market. The music for this episode was created by Southern Utah Local, Jake Shepard.